Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. You can't look at the end of a story and not believe or at least consider that there is more to the story than what you have been a part of. When we pick up today's story, it can't start today and it can't end where last week ended because there's a large gap that gives an illusion that just isn't true. Yes, Saul was called down on the road to Damascus in a bright and shiny event. His life was changed. He began, he picked himself up. We know Ananias came and laid his hands on him. We've been over that story. And Paul gets up filled with the truth of who Jesus is, filled with the revelation, with the reality of who he was and what has been done for him and the sacrifice of Jesus. He wakes up, he walks out, and he starts preaching in Damascus. And people think it's a joke, right? They're not sure. They start to doubt that it's real. There's one guy present, his name is Barnabas, and Barnabas is going, no, this guy's real. I've seen it. Then Paul goes back to his hometown of Jerusalem where he is a big deal, he is a big person, and he has been sent on a mission to kill followers of the way, and now he is a part of the way. And he goes into the temple and he starts to teach, and people just think it's a scam. And the people aren't sure, but then there's Barnabas. And Barnabas says, no, I saw him. This is real. And then this wave of hate and disbelief. People in the church don't believe him. Paul is unifying the, belief, the people of Jerusalem in the way and of the Jewish tradition, but just through the fact that they believe he is false. They plot to kill him. The people of the way are like, we can't keep you alive. And so they take a big basket. Yes, there's somebody who raised their hand and said, I know how we can keep Paul safe. We'll weave a really big basket and put a rope on it and we'll lower him down outside the city wall. No one will guess that. No one will wonder, hey, does anybody see that man-sized basket? No. And so they did it. They lowered Saul down in a man-made basket that fit him and lowered him down, and he ran off to Tarsus, where he was from. He wasn't ineffective. He was actually extremely effective. He didn't lack talent. He was extremely talented. He didn't lack boldness. He was extremely bold. And yet, listen, for eight years, he was put on ice. Eight years. Called down in a, the most beautiful, enviable way someone could be called down. There's undoubtable that Jesus encountered his life, and yet they put him away for eight years to fade the heat. When we see what someone does, writes 13 books of the New Testament, we assume that that person just woke up and started doing that. No, God sent Saul away for eight years Eight years he sent him away. I got a basketball goal when I was 11. No, 13, doesn't matter. For Christmas, I got a basketball. Shocker. Uh, we went out, and I was going to get better. I was the worst kid in my neighborhood. I was the last one picked. When I was a kid, they still lined you up. You know, when I was a kid, it was okay to line everybody up and to go, this one, I'll take this one. And I was always the last one picked for basketball. They didn't want me 
I didn't want me. I knew I was going to shoot an air ball. I knew I was going to be wide open because nobody guarded me. And I was going to shoot and everybody would just stand under the basket and catch it. I knew that was going to happen. But yet, for some reason, I just kept playing. But my parents heard about this and were so mortified that they bought me a basketball goal and a basketball and they sent me out to practice. So my dad said, hey, listen. So I went out for five minutes, came back in. My dad said, how'd it go? Missed every shot. I said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to come inside. He said, you can get better in five minutes? Well, I can't get any worse. He said, do you understand that this is the people that are good take shots when nobody's watching? Do you understand that people that are good do things that no one else does when no one else is watching? That's how they get better. So if you want to be better, and I'm assuming you do, then you need to get out and do something that will make you better. So I said, what do you think that would be? He said, take 100 shots, 100 shots a day? He said, you go pick a spot and take 100 shots every day from that spot. Well, that'd take like 30 minutes. So every day I went out and I took 100 shots. Sometimes I lied, but I'd take about 100 shots. And then I started liking it and I started doing like 50 layups. And then I just started doing stuff that I like to do. And then one day I was grounded for a whole summer, another sermon illustration. And I missed football practice in the summer. So I had to go into football locker room when no one, when I didn't know anything on the first day of school, when everybody had been there for weeks before. So instead, I looked in the basketball locker room where there was a lot less intimidating guys in, and I just walked in there and sat down. And the coach is like, who are you, Jesse Hardy? He said, what are you doing in here? I'm playing basketball. He goes, you're not on my roll. I go, well, that's weird. So anyway, I went down, got my schedule changed, and I started playing basketball. I was a fifth string post. Yes, that's right. I was a post. And that's the guy who plays under the basket. My strategy was aggression, extreme aggression, penalized aggression. That was my strategy because I was slow and had no skill. But every day I was still going home and taking 100 shots from this little weird square spot in my driveway. Lo and behold, that was 15 feet from the basket, right where the elbow is, right where this one play is. So every play, I just was the worst guy there except on this one play they called. And with my rotation, I hit the shot every time right from the elbow. Coach was like, hey, and then guess what he started doing? He's like, hey, what's your name? Hardy. Hardy. Hardy, show us how that works. Fifth string guy. Really, only reason I was still on the team is because they weren't allowed to cut people. Took 100 shots every day, no matter what. I worked on my left hand layups. And the day before our first game, grades came out. Six-week report cards. Three guys failed, and one guy injured himself at his family's volleyball game the weekend before. I started the first game of my JV basketball career. Yeah, that's right. I should not have started. I shouldn't even be on the team. And all I did was put in a little work that nobody saw. And guess what? First play, guess what coach calls? He calls the play. I shouldn't be there. I was the worst kid on the team, and yet he calls the play. I catch the ball. I turn. I shoot. It goes in. The only shot I ever made in my basketball career. I don't know if it was for today that I did that, but all I know is that it's a microcosm of what happens when we're willing to walk the line of a story 
that is happening in our lives. And there is nothing we walk away from sooner, quicker, or faster than the call that God puts on our life. We walk away from it because we're not willing to commit to the story. Because we believe that the moment He calls us, we should be put into the game. But I'm telling you that if He took the Apostle Paul, put him on ice for eight years, and while he was at his hometown getting prepared for what God had for him to write 13 books, inspire generations and generations, and to move him in a way that through people that you can't imagine, that we all envy, that we want to be. It did not just happen. So as we walk into this story today, understand what Paul does is what he does first that makes the point of this story so spectacular. And what we miss is that we walk away from the journey that nobody sees with God before everyone can see what God is doing. So, he was talented, he was worthwhile, and yet he waited eight years until a man came and got him. That Barnabas guy went and found him and said, you're the guy we need, let's go. So they walked to a pagan city named Antioch, went to a place that nobody wanted them, to tell a story that no one was sure they should tell to a people that didn't want to hear it. And all that happened was the greatest movement that had happened in the way up to that point ever. And it didn't happen through the works of the Apostle Paul. It happened through the obedience of Paul that when it was time, he was ready to do what God called him to do. And this is the point of our message. It's our big idea. And here's what it is. Submitting to God's timing positions us powerfully to be used for the gospel. That's it. When you submit to the timing of God, not your timing, not your agenda, not your way, but when we submit to God's timing, however long that is, He positions us to be powerfully used to spread the good news of Jesus the good news that Daniel stood up here and talked about, the idea that we have nothing to offer, yet Jesus died for us, and as we look inside of ourselves and realize that, it leads us to raise our hands and praise his name. So as we start this story, we need to understand that this is a process of submission that leads to a powerful exhibition of the Holy Spirit's power in the life of Paul and Barnabas, not as a result of some flippant, thing, but as a model that we can live by to do the same thing. Okay. So turn with me to Acts chapter 13. I encourage you to go home and read Acts chapter 11. It's powerful. It's exciting. These people were doing things. Read it. These weren't perfect people that had it all figured out. These are people that were just figuring it out as they went. Several times in the book of Acts, they say, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. These were just people that put themselves in the position and said, I don't know. It's not against the, the law. It's not against the Ten Commandments. And it's in love. Let's just do it and see what happens. Antioch is the place they're called to. Antioch is the place they're going. Antioch is the first place that Jewish Christians began to share the message with Gentiles. Your Bible may say Greeks. It's 
the first church, they started outwardly sharing the gospel, not just to Jews who didn't understand the way of Jesus, but they started to tell the, the truth of Jesus to anyone, circumcised or uncircumcised. And as a result, the church grew in a place where nothing good was happening. This is the worst place you could possibly imagine. It is the pit, the very den of Satan. Everything that could happen would happen. It would make what we're living in today seem like a PG movie. It was bad, and bad things were happening, and they began to share the truth of Jesus in the darkest places, and as a result, people's lives were changed. And then we see what God is doing. Because as Saul was away in his hometown, it says that the church began to grow and grow and figure it out in a time of wonderful peace. Their greatest persecutor was away. He had actually become a part of the team and he was gone and they began to enjoy peace like nothing else. But now God was assembling His people and He was doing something great and they were ready for the ride. So here we go. 13 verse 1 says this, Among the prophets and teachers, of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, we mentioned him, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. Those are just some of the people there. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, it's important to know that these men were part of a larger group and they were ministering. You may have King James, I know a couple of you read the King James, and it may say they were ministering to the Lord. That doesn't mean that they were they were serving God, and as a result of serving God, they were depleted. And as a result of their depletion, they didn't run away, they ran to God. They didn't take a break from the source, they went to the source. And it goes back, if you go to Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, let's not grow tired of doing what is good. But you and I know, sometimes doing good is tiring and annoying, and sometimes the people we're helping are super annoying. Have you ever been helping someone that didn't want your help but needed your help? Have you ever begged to help someone and they finally let you and the whole time you're helping them, you feel like you're doing them a favor? That's annoying and it's depleting and it's a part of ministry, not just professional ministry, but anything we do for someone else. Any selfless act we do, it brings upon this just depletion in our souls. And these guys weren't running away. They were a part of this ministry. They were desperately serving. And as a result, they took time away to focus on God. Not focus on themselves. It wasn't more of them they needed. It was more of God they needed. And so it says here, they were fasting and they were worshiping. They were getting themselves in position, not out of position. And then it says this, the Holy Spirit said... Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them, sent them on their way. I don't know what God's voice sounds like, to be honest with you. God's voice in my mind sounds like Barry White. I don't know why, but when God talks to me, I believe it would be very smooth, very exciting, and very interesting. I feel like when God would talk, I'd be like, Yes, I would like to do that. That sounds like a wonderful idea. I don't know what your voice of God is. I want to be very clear. I do not believe this was an audible calling 
that God put out. If you've ever been in this kind of position, as these men were putting themselves in submission to God's timing, not their own, there's just this idea. There was probably men there. We know if we read further that there was men with the gift of prophecy. And that was probably a common thought that these people woke up and they were so in tune because they were in such the right position that they said, hey, is anybody else getting that Paul and Barnabas need to go? I don't know if Paul and Barnabas were super annoying. They may have planned this all from the beginning. I don't know. But it feels like there was a real spiritual connection there. And that happens again. Listen, these men were not walking down the road. They were fasting and praying and worshiping. Jesus said what? When they came up and asked Jesus, why aren't your people fasting? Jesus said, well, I'm here. They can't get any closer to me than here. But when I'm gone, when the bridegroom, when the bride... When the groom leaves, then they will fast. And that's what they were doing. They were fasting and they put themselves in the position. They were doing the work of prayer and contemplation and the reflection of Scripture and the truth of who God was in their life. And what it was revealing was not how wrong everybody was. But when we put ourselves in that place, guess what it reveals? That we were dead once and our many sins and trespasses. When you can't move forward to serve someone else, it's because you've lost the perspective that they deserve it because you believe they don't. When you reach that point, it is not them, it is not a them problem, although they probably are wrong. It is that your perspective is wrong. And when we spend time in reflection and fasting and prayer, then we put ourselves in a place to be used by God to hear His Spirit. Jesus went away often, and what did He say? I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. Jesus was a representative of God, and as His representatives here on earth, why would we think we would do anything else? That we can just live our lives in overdrive, and busy, 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 and go, 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 and suddenly when we don't hear God, we say, where is God? That's a perspective that's wrong. That's a you-focused Christianity, and it's just, not, it's just not the way. We want to have these encounters, and we want God to use us, but it only comes from a long period of letting God do in us what He will. We want to skip that, go to the end, and raise our hands, and multitudes fall out, or whatever you want to happen. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way anyway. Jesus was born as a baby. He didn't fall down from heaven and like levitate down. Didn't broadcast it all over the sky. Well, he kind of did in a star. But he, di- he could have done it numerous ways, and yet he didn't because there was even a maturation process for the Son of God. And yet we come to know Christ and we're like, hey, where's everybody? Why is nobody listening to me? Hey, family members, I changed my life. Hey, people, I'm different. I'm not the same person. Why am I paying the price? Why am I paying these penalties? Paul paid the penalty for eight years and spent a year here in Antioch as a nobody. And we want to come back. We want to be there. And we want to. And we're missing the greater thing that God wants to do. So there's this prayer, and they decided after they heard it, let's pray and fast some more. And then they laid their hands on the men. And then the men went on their first 
missionary journey. This is the Apostle Paul's first time out. This is the genesis of all that we read. The 13 books in the New Testament that we read are a genesis of this moment. And it wasn't because Saul was so good. It's because Saul submitted to God for the time that God had so that Saul could be used for the greatest good. What do you and I need to keep doing, stop doing, continue doing that God is using to make us perfect for something great? So Acts 13, 4 through 5 says this, So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport about 15 miles south and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark, yes, John Mark, the writer of Mark in the Bible. This guy went with them as their assistant. This is an all-star team here. We've got these people that have waited their time. And now they're being sent. And as they're being sent, we see that Paul does something that he writes about all the time. Where does Paul go first? They went to the Jewish synagogues and preached. If you read in Romans 1, right at the beginning, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Listen to this. The Jew first and also the Gentile. Paul, if you watch what he does, every time he shows up in town, he goes to the synagogue. He, he lived this out to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He went to the places that they gathered and he told the story of who they were. And he told this story of who Jesus was because he said this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. So, it says afterwards, they began traveling from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos. Here, listen to this. I think it's important to understand that going town to town is draining, demanding, and unrewarding. They're in the doldrums of ministry and of work for God. This is not constant hallelujah praises. Paul writes that he's been beaten, shipwrecked, destroyed and chased out of town. That started happening here. He began, he showed up at places that nobody invited him and gave a message that nobody wanted so that some might hear and believe. That's not rewarding. It's like showing up at the Christmas party and, you know, with your uncle that talks about politics all the time or talks about gun rights or whatever he talks about. Whoever you show up and they're like, oh man, these guys showed up and gave a message that not everybody wanted. And as a result, and in their defiance, they chased, they were chased out of town. They were beaten. It is not rewarding. It isn't glorious. It isn't glamorous. There are doldrums. There are spaces in between, but it's all in an effort to be in the right position. This is what he writes to Timothy. This is why I remind you. He said, Timothy, I saw your faith. And then he says this. That's why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. It is a work in progress. We have to build our gifts, the things that we've been given. We have to exercise them before they matter. I'm not going to make the obvious weight room joke or illustration here, but it works. 
Anything you do that breaks you down at some point makes you stronger. And we can't be discouraged by failure. We can't be discouraged because it's an act of fanning into flame this greater thing. We have to be ready for it to happen. We have to be prepared. Paul was walking through this not so that he could be used by God only to exhibit what we call, quote-unquote, the act of the Holy Spirit. He was obeying God, and as a result, eventually something happened. But I think we miss, we miss it if we think it's the greatest thing. So let's go. So they went from town to town. They went from place to place. They, they went, and finally, it says, they reached Paphos. Finally. They were going through the town, and finally, it says, they got to where they were going. But all the journeys along the way were a part of the process to this finale where they met a Jewish sorcerer. Seriously, that's it. His name, Bar-Jesus. Come on, man, are you serious? What that means is it's not some crazy thing. It really just means son of Joshua, Yeshua. That's the, the Hebrew name for Jesus was Yeshua. So yes, when you see the book of Joshua, that actually in Greek means Jesus. So Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, but not Jesus in the Bible, not down the cross for our sins, Jesus. It's just, that was a name people had. So this guy was son of Jesus, but he was also an evil sorcerer, okay? He had powers. I don't know what he was. He was an advisor. People had advisors. They still have advisors. The president has a whole cabinet. You've seen movies. There's always that creepy dude that's whispering into the guy's ear. He's always misleading. We can all see it. He can never see it. I don't know why that is. That's how hard it is to get good advice, I guess. You'll take anything. Anybody willing to consistently give you advice? Come on, stand beside me even if you look really creepy and you have long fingernails. If there's a person speaking into your life with long fingernails, stop it. Okay, there's no reason to speak in your life. Okay, long hair. If he hasn't taken a shower, bad advice. You got We see it on the movies all the time. Don't let it happen. So, this guy, everybody could tell, but this other guy couldn't tell. This other guy was a governor. He was a big deal. And they had made such a stink. They had made such a racket moving throughout this island in the Mediterranean Sea that this guy's like, man, these guys are making such a commotion. They don't bother me. I want to know about them. His name was Sergius Paulus. He was an intelligent man, the Bible says. He was the governor and he invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him. Why? He wanted to hear the Word of God. He wanted to know the truth. And here's what you need to understand. Of all the people, if you were to say, hey, Jesse, what's the most strategic thing I could do? I'd say, hey, stay away from the governor and his creepy sorcerer, right? That's a bad plan. Try to stay out of the viewpoint of the guy who can kill you. Stay away from him. But this, guess what? They went to the source. They were invited by him because they were diligent and in position and following God's plan. When we submit to God's timing, we are positioned to be used powerfully for the gospel. That's the truth. I don't have control, but the Holy Spirit is like a faucet, and all I can do is put myself under the faucet. When it comes on, boom. But I have to be in position to do that. Paul and Barnabas were in position. They went through every place and every time for such a time as this 
But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered. And he urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. But what happened? Paul and Barnabas had been fanning into flame the gifts that God gave them. They hadn't been sitting around pouting that, man, we've got to walk through the stinking island. It's hot. Nobody cares. People are beating us, yelling at us, talking about our mother. Now, this is a horrible thing. But yet, what did they do? They kept going. They kept fanning into flame through failure, through trial, through persecution. It didn't put them out. It ignited them more. Because they weren't living in something they could control. They were living outside of the realm of who they were. And that was exhilarating for them. And it put them in position. So here it is, folks. The Saul-Paul thing's over at this very stage. You should circle it, write it down. No more, no more confusing, hey, Saul was Paul, Paul is Saul. No, from this point forward, he's the apostle Paul, no more Saul, right here. Write it down. So Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was in position to be used powerfully for his glory. No, for the good news of Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Some of you are very uncomfortable in the back right now. He's just staring at him. The guy's like, and Paul's like, no, you look at me right here. You see me? He was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he said, you son of the devil. It just means that. It's not like some biblical cuss word. You son of the devil. Full of every sort of deceit and fraud. He wasn't talking to the man. He was talking to the spirit that lived inside of the man. Because we're not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of darkness. Saul, the Holy Spirit, revealed to him not that man was evil, but that what was living inside of him was evil. And he saw it for what it was. And he looked at that and he said, you son of the devil full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? This guy had a temporary life. He was born and he was going to die. He looked at him in the eyes and he knew it was an eternal thing that would never stop, always coming. And that being, that existence is here still until Jesus comes back. And we are fighting that, not people. We are fighting that, not agendas. We are fighting that, not people's opinions. Because we were all dead in our many sins and trespasses. But God, what did He do? He raised us with Christ because of what we didn't know, but because of His grace. So He looked at Him. He said, you son of the devil, watch now, for the Lord has laid His hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. Why blind? You will not see the sunlight for some time and instantly mist and darkness came over the man's eyes and he began groping around begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. Praise the Lord, I don't have that power. Right? I'd be, and it'd be coming out like the emperor in Star Wars lightning bolts. I'd be striking some people blind and definitely mute. Right? Like, hey, you know what you... Right? So, but listen. Listen to me. 
Where was the Holy Spirit in this? Was Paul filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, he was. But was that man becoming blind the biggest miracle of this story? No. And you and I are going to think we're failures every day of our life if we don't make someone blind or make someone mute or make someone smart and not dumb. Let me tell you something. That is not the biggest miracle of this story. That is not the biggest use of the Holy Spirit. Watch what happens. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. For he was astonished in the teaching about the Lord. You can go blind. I'm sure I could have some like spray in some kind of those weird things. I could spray it right here and Jason would go blind. But guess what? I can't bring you back to life. But the Holy Spirit showed up not to make that man blind, but to make someone come back who was dead come back to life. That's the power. That's why the Holy Spirit shows up. That's why we put ourselves in the right position, not so that we could show off, but that we could resurrect someone to life who was dead. And when he comes, it says in Isaiah 35, written thousands of years before this happened, he will open the eyes of the blind and he will unplug the ears of the deaf and the lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy and springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy a thirsty land. Marsh, grass, and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. That's the greatest miracle we can do and it lives inside of us. This room is filled with two people. People who believe that to be true and have accepted that and people who need to accept that in their life right now. That's it. And whoever you are and whatever you come to that truth and whatever you step over that line of faith, then you take that story and you put yourself in the right position and someday God will use you to bring someone to the truth and the miracle of resurrected life. That governor was once dead, but he was raised to life with Christ. That's the greatest miracle, and every one of us can do it, because there's what it says. 1 Corinthians 1. And remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. It isn't you. And it never will be you. And you're never going to be good enough. But let me tell you this. When you come to Christ, when you surrender your life to him, you who were once dead will be alive. And the Holy Spirit will fill you. And you will have the opportunity to put yourself in position to be powerfully used for the gospel. Not for yourself, not for your own glory, but for the good news that someone who was once dead could be brought back to life. And that's the greatest miracle that could happen every single day. This story isn't about a man becoming blind. It's about a man who was blind now being able to see. It was about a man who was dead now being alive. That's what this story is about. That's what Paul's ministry was about. And that's what our life's about for those of us who follow Jesus. And for those of us in this room who are not followers, that decision is made by simply submitting yourself, accepting 
the gift of Jesus. Nothing you have can be brought in. But when you walk out, you were once dead, but now you're alive. In summary, submit to God's timeline. Go where he calls you. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. Submit. God, I submit to you. God, I'll go where you go, where you call me, and then I'm going to watch what he does. Want what he does is good too. You could want that too. But watch what he does in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the opportunity we've been given to be presented with the truth, not from my lips, but from your word, the scripture. For many in this room, it is a day to realize that it isn't about our plan, our agenda, and our timeline, but that we must in some way, in every way, submit our life to you. You are not a consultant. You are not an add-on, a bolt-on, an upgrade to our lives, but that our lives are gone and you give us a new one and we submit them to you. For many in this room, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we have decided that you're just a bolt-on addition to our lives upgrading us to some other level. And we ask you to show us what it means to submit, to lay our lives down and to pick up our cross every day. Father, would you use us, show us what it is we need to do. But for those in this room who've never believed, never accepted, believe they have something to offer, believe that they have something to add, Lord, would you present to them the truth of who you are in a way that I never could. And that would you show them that they are blind, that they are dead, not because you dislike them, but Lord, because you just are too good to be around sin, but you presented a way through Christ, through his death and his resurrection, that anyone who believes will be made right in your sight. Lord, whatever happens, we give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great week.